You are now listening to the Jason Capital Show. So sit down and lend me your ears. I am Jason Capital. You are an action taker in this world of talkers, and we are here together handcrafting your legendary life. And to reach the level of master, there actually is a process and somebody has to name you a master. And the way you become a master is another master recognizes in you that you have reached that level. So we are about to walk into Robert Greene's house right now. We got the interview with Robert Greene. If you don't know him, author of 48 Laws of Power, Art of Seduction, 33 Strategies to War, Laws of Human Nature. Uh, he's written some of the most popular books ever on manipulation, on marketing, on influence. And you might be like, you know, some people, actually, they don't want to read his book because they think it's, oh, I'm going to learn how to manipulate people. And listen, you need to know the stuff at the very least to protect yourself against the people who will try and use this stuff against you so you can pick out when they're using their their manipulation techniques on you, whatever you want to call it. Um, what's interesting about Robert, from what I understand, I've never met him before, is that he's nothing like you would expect because he wrote the books. He's he's a writer, he's an author, he's a researcher. I don't think he's out there like manipulating people on and on. I think he actually started writing this stuff because he was it was being used against him in a workplace and he didn't like it and he wanted to understand it. So knowledge up. Let's begin right now. Robert, thank you so much for uh, opening your doors to us. This well, thank you for making the journey all the way to the other side of, of nowhere. <laughs> all the way from Newport Beach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a fine drive, and, and frankly, I would have driven a lot further. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. I, uh, I showed you, obviously, my, my 48 hours of power covered in notes. Dog-eared. Dog-eared completely. True story, when I first read that book, I was at Michigan State University, and I, first chapter... Uh, you know, never outshine the master. Immediately, I was sucked in, and there was this girl who I'd been really sweet on, and I wanted to take her out, and uh, she was not accepting my advances. Let's say, put it that way. And uh, I'm on chapter 36 or something. I get a text message from her, and she wants to meet up, and I'm excited. Let's do it. And uh, when the time came to meet up with her, I was so lost in the book. I had to make a choice: do I finish the book or do I go on the date with the wow. girl? And I chose to finish the book instead. Really? And I never you, saw you, it. You, you didn't go out the day? I texted her. I, I, I made up some excuse why I couldn't. Wow, that's almost hard to believe. It is a true story. It is it? It is a 100% <laughs> a true story. Um, and frankly, it was, I think it was the right decision. Wow. Because there's a lot of hers, but there's not a lot of books I, that... You just couldn't put it down. ...that have that impact. No, it was... It, there was something, something about it just... Uh, I don't know. I grew up very... This is a year interview, by the way. I don't want to talk too much about myself. But I... I just grew up very innocent and, and maybe ignorant, and it just opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I think that maybe it was something similar with you and what motivated you to even, to even write the book. My goal for this, though, isn't, I don't want to ask you the questions that everyone asks you. I want to talk about different things. Sure. If that's cool that with you. exciting. Yeah, it could, it could be. Um, well, I guess my first question is, we were talking before about when you were writing 48 Laws, and you're in that smaller Santa Monica apartment. Uh, I think you used the word poor. <laughs> Well, I was, you know, it was a one-bedroom apartment near the beach. It wasn't, that sounds say, poor, nice. but, you know. It I, wasn't I had, like this. Yeah, yeah I, had, I really hadn't made much money. I wasn't very successful in my career or anything. I would hate to say poor, but I wasn't very successful. Sure. Well, so my question then is, when you were writing that book, what did an average day look like then for Robert Greene? 
I was writing the 48 Laws. Yes. Well, just to give it a little bit of context, I was 37, 38 years old when I started writing it. I was older, and I had a kind of a checkered career in Hollywood and journalism, and I was, you know, I hadn't really made it, and I was approaching, and I was very sort of frustrated and even depressed um, because I loved writing and I wanted to be successful, but I hadn't found my niche. And when I met this man, Yost Delfords, who ended up being the producer of the 48 Laws, just by coincidence, we were in Italy on a job together. And he gave me, he, he asked me for ideas for a book. We were walking along in Venice, the beautiful city of Venice, Italy. And uh, I kind of improvised what turned into the 48 Laws. And eventually, he got so excited, he decided to pay me while I wrote the book. But well, the reason I'm giving you the backstory is I was in such a desperate state at that point that I realized that either I make this book happen or I'm probably going to be a loser in life. I'll, I could even be suicidal. I was really, really not in a good place. So it was kind of like get rich or die trying type thing, you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was so excited by the opportunity. And as I started working on the book, I realized that it was the right thing, it clicked. Like this was what I was meant to do. So, you know, I was in this small apartment. Anna was there, my girlfriend, we lived, she was there, she had her own apartment, she was there a lot. I had my cat, and I, she built me a special table, which is still here, so that the cat wouldn't keep bothering me while I wrote. And I just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. I was so motivated, I was obsessed, and, um, to this day, I can't understand how I did it. I was younger. But I wrote that book in two years. With all of that research and all of that writing, I could never do it today. I take like five years now to write a book. But it's because I was so, you know, it's like this is it. I call it in my 33 Strategies of War, I call it Death Ground. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I was on Death Ground. My back was to the wall. If I don't succeed, I'm going to die, I'm going to fail. And so I can hardly remember, I can almost not even remember what it was like because I was just working, working, Christmas, birthday, etc. But I was very, very excited and very motivated. So was there like a, a ritual, a schedule of writing and researching or was it just I wake up and I get to work? I can't even remember. I mean, um, I had so much research to do that, you know, I mean, hundreds of books. I went to the UCLA library, this is pre-Amazon days, you know, so you had to get your books from the library. Um, I obviously bought books, I went to a bookstore, et cetera, but I couldn't order on Amazon. So I go to UCLA a lot, which was great. I'm, I'm a trained researcher. I'd worked in Hollywood as a researcher, so I knew how to do it. That was fun. I would make massive photocopies of books. I would read them and underline them at home. And then I would, I would write, and so, you know, back then I was exercising like I do now, and I would swim at some point during the day or ride my bike along the beach or do my yoga, but it was mostly just four, five, six hours a day of writing. You know, I had a little laptop, and I wrote on that bench that she made for me, and that's just, that was about my whole life. For two years? Yeah, a little over two years. So you, you mentioned that it was death ground for you. Totally. It feels to me like a lot of people are in a similar death ground right now. 
and right now isn't special. That's probably true every day since, who knows, civilization. Why is it, though, a lot of people can be in that scenario and they don't take the action or have the motivation that you did or someone like 50 Cent does when they're in that, that scenario? Well, first of all, I think almost anybody would be in that scenario if you push them far enough, if like their, sur their very survival was at stake. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people have this vagueness to their lives. They don't really feel that necessity pushing them. They don't. So I felt I was 38 years old, and I felt like, or 37, somewhere in there, and I felt like, you know, if this book doesn't succeed, I may end up homeless. I'm going to have to go to work back in Hollywood, which I hated. I didn't know. And I knew that I had something in me, a good book or something. I knew I was a good writer, you know. So I was deeply, deeply motivated. And I felt incredible pressure to yeah. succeed. So a lot of people may have, whether or not being successful, things aren't working out for them. But they don't perceive it in the same pressurized way. Yeah. You know, it's a matter of how you perceive your own life. Yeah. Because you could, I could, I could have thought, for instance, to explain this better, I could have thought, Jason, well, you know, maybe in a couple of years I, I will write another screenplay, or I'm going to write a novel, or I'll go into, I'll go to law school. You know, maybe I don't need to do this. I could have, you know, I could have thought, oh, I'm young, relatively. I've got plenty of time. Okay, and you, you tell yourself, it's what you tell yourself. You say you have plenty of time, but there'll be other opportunities. You let the ball drop. But if you look at it, this is my one opportunity. I could die tomorrow, right? Yep. I don't have much time. I, you know, who knows what I'll be in three years or four years. I may not have another opportunity ever again like this. Seize it. A lot of people don't look at it the same way. They have excuses. They have little escape routes. Yes. Oh, my dad will buy, pay, give me money if I'm really poor. Oh, you know, something else will happen. People will help me or I'll find something else. But it's not, they're not being realistic. They're not looking at what's really going on. They're not feeling the pressure that life is imposing on them because life is very harsh. The world is very competitive and you delude yourself by thinking, no, you know, it'll be easy. I can learn things on the internet. People will have blah, 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 blah. I didn't have those illusions, and neither did 50 Cent, you know. It, there's a term I always say, which is like the, the tyranny of comfort. And I think that's very prevalent in today's society, because like you're saying, it doesn't work out. I can get this job or do this. I could drive an Uber. There's all these options yeah. that weren't available back then. You, I remember reading a paper from you, I don't know how many years ago, and you're talking about a, a, a philosophical term called radical realism. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's actually, um, I do talk about it, but I also, I think it's the first chapter of the 50th Law, uh, which is all about fear. And um, it's, you know, the problem that a lot of people have in the world today is they find all of their relief, all of their pleasure from fantasy and illusion, like video games, like entertainment, like all kinds of fantasies about, you know, the girls I'm going to date, the things I'm going to adventures I'm going to have. And so they put all of their energy and their sense of pleasure and what is exciting in illusion, in fantasy, right? Um, and reality is seen as something kind of ugly and boring, you know? Well, reality is like, got to work, got to make money, you know? I'm getting older, I'm not going to be young anymore, blah, blah, blah. Reality is ugly. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to flip it around. Fantasy and illusion has its place 
but it's also the place where you get lost. It's also the place of drugs, of addictions, of, of losing touch with what's really important in life. And reality is extremely beautiful, you know? The reality, which I've in all of my books, and it's the subject of my next book, The Sublime, the fact that you're alive today, Jason, is a series of coincidences and chance encounters that mathematically are absolutely almost impossible to conceive, right? Like, life on Earth starting was, was almost never happened. The whole evolution of animals on this planet leading to human beings almost never happened. Our, our ancestors nearly died out, on and on and on down the chain. The fact that your parents ever met was unlikely, and their grandparents, etc. So the fact that you're here is insane, but that's reality. So the world that you see around you, the trees, these bushes, the animals, the friends that you have, it's incredible that the, the world is what it is. So reality is immensely, immensely beautiful, and I want you to embrace it. I want you to embrace it as radically as possible, and see that in, in the war book, I talk about perfect economy as a strategy. And what I mean is, you have certain means at your disposal, and you know an army has so many men in its army, or men and women, so many pieces of artillery, planes, etc. You have resources, you have your energy, you have the money that you have, you have your own intelligence, your experience, okay? That's your reality, right? Mm -hmm. That's who you are. You're not, you're not um, Michael Jordan, you're not Bill Gates or whatever, you are Jason Capital or Alex Morocco or whatever, whoever you are at the moment, right? That's who you are, you have resources. And Max, aware of who you are, know thyself as the ancient Greeks say, know your resources, know your strengths, know what you can do, know how far you can push yourself. That's incredibly beautiful, that's radical realism. That's making the most of what you have of your gifts and your, of your faults as well, and making the most of them. And I, the main thing to know about radical realism is switch this idea that escape is fun. Escape is not fun. Actually, go in the other direction and embracing the world and your circumstances is what's fun and exciting and working with what you have instead of dreaming of things that you'll never have. Are there any practices or any things that you've cultivated in your life or rituals that you do that you find connect you more to avoiding escape and moving deeper into what is here now? Well, it's, you know, some people, there may be a genetic component, some people just may not be born that way. I've always been kind of born that way, but, um, you know, I, I meditate every morning. I've been doing it now for nine years. Um, and that really, really connects me because that's all that it's about. Do you do any special kind of meditation? I do Zen meditation. Okay. It's all about emptying the mind. And it, Zen, if you understand it, is like the most realistic philosophy. It's about connecting yourself to what is truly real in the world, right? So that process is also a process of knowing who you're not. So a lot of times the problem that people have right now, and this ties up with realism, is they're not aware of who they are. They have a false self. They have a self that is created through social media. They read Facebook or Instagram or whatever, Twitter, and they become a reflection of what other people are thinking, what other people are doing, 
and they don't know who they are anymore. And I want to say knowing yourself, knowing who you are, is part of this radical realism. It is very empowering. And so my process has always been not to follow what other people are doing, but to always follow my own inclinations within reason, because I could be wrong sometimes. I do listen to other people. But when I write a book, to give you one practice I always go through is, is this the book that I want to write? Am I doing it because it's fun and exciting? Or am I doing it because I want to make money? Or people are pressuring me? And I avoid the one and I always go towards the other. So I'm always examining my choices in life and under the, under the light of, is this something that I need, I want? Is it important for me? Not what other people think, not what other people want out of me, but what I want. And that's, that's another very important exercise. Mm -hmm. And you, I assume you find when it's what you want, the creating and the creation process is infinitely richer, and then that's better for everyone else in the end. Yeah, I mean, I talk in mastery. Um, sorry, I keep quoting my own books, but... No, these are, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure everyone understands here who's listening, at least in my audience, knows I, like, I, I'm, like, I'm a book nerd, but I really, like, read a lot of your books, and, that, like, that book, I don't know, ten times, mastery, at least four times, like, more I haven't read, I, I do need to read it, but... Oh. But, and, and I've tried to share as much of that with my audience as possible. Okay. So you can, you can open okay. books all you want. We're okay. going to put Amazon links everywhere around here anyway. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, well, in Mastery, I talk about if you're making something, it could be um, you know, a piece of carpentry, it could be a book, it could be a business that you start. The level of excitement that you feel, the energy you put into it, the love that you have for the work, is translated into the end product. It's something hard to describe. There's no algorithm that can possibly analyze this. It's very vague, but I'm, I made it, I'm described it very clearly in mastery. That if you write something out of kind of for money or because somebody else wants you to do it or you're a hired hand, I, I read books like that all the time. They don't come alive in the hand. You know you can feel in the words, you can feel in the language that the writer isn't connected to the word. They're doing it for some other reason. You can feel it in a movie. You can feel it in a building that was designed where they, they're just doing it because, you know, someone wanted them to put up a, a big glass structure. Or are they really, like, coming at it with their own creative intensity and their person? You can see it in the end product, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had a path in life. I could have taken the path that I'm going to write the 48 Laws of Power thinking, what are the other books out there that are successful? I'm going to follow them. I'm going to be like Malcolm Gladwell, blah, 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 blah. But then I don't feel that connection to here, and it shows up in the book. So I said, no, the book might fail, but I'm going to bring all of my blood, all of who I am into it. And I believe, it's almost a mystical thing or magical thing, I believe if I put my love and energy into it, the reader will feel it. You can sense the energy yes. and the emotion that a person has in their work. Yes. So... Um, I can't remember what your question was. But, I, have, I have no idea what it was, but I like the answer. Yeah. I like where it went. Yeah, I mean, it's very important to, to feel very excited by the project. You know? And if I feel sometimes my energy drags and I'm like, oh man, I'm getting a little tired of this. I have to find a way to revive it. And I find exercises to do that. Because I never want the writing to feel like it's coming out of a place of just mechanical. Yeah, because it transfers over like you're talking about people know. And frankly, I would say most 
most products created today, if if one is I feel this in my gut and it's pouring through me versus I'm doing this because it's a money grab. Fortunately, most of them probably land in the second category. Who was probably one of the most successful people ever in modern times? Is Steve Jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Died one of the wealthiest men on the planet, right? He didn't care at all about money. Yeah. He was obsessed with design. He was obsessed to the point where drive people crazy. He wanted to make the most perfect product, and he wanted to bring all of his energy into it, the things that he loved about design. And I talk in the books, when he was a young kid, it was the same way. He was obsessed with the design of electronics, right? So he put all of that energy and that intensity into what became like the iPod, which was the first sort of handheld device that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and it all took off, because he wasn't thinking well, how, about, how can I make the most money? What's already out there? What's the next thing to do? He was thinking of what he wanted to do, how he saw the future, what he was connecting to. Mm-hmm. And I think that translates to almost any kind of business decision as well. I agree completely, yeah. And so you mentioned before Zen. And, you know, if you check the lineage from, you know, Buddha all the way down to when you know, it goes to Japan and China and Zen happens and... and there's been a golden thread of gurus that have shared this wisdom uh, throughout the ages, and you like you know you talk about some of it in in Forty Laws of Power and gurus and, and things like this. What is your take on even if we want to talk about Zen, as uh, like what is your take on the gurus who shared like Zen wisdom? Because there's some who are in social media now who teach these principles, and I mean if someone's making money off of it while teaching it versus someone who's in a cave and you got to travel 800 miles up a hill just to see him so he can hit you on the head with a stick. Like, what? how do you see all this? What, what's your take on that? They don't have gurus Zen. Guru is more of an Indian expression. They have Zen masters. They're called masters. And to reach the level of master, there actually is a process and somebody has to name you a master and you get a, a certificate. And, you, and the way you become a master is another master recognizes in you that you have reached that level. And Zen has a kind, it's not a science, it's an art, but they have a way of recognizing who has truly reached the highest state of enlightenment. And for centuries, Zen operated in a one-on-one situation where um, you, you dealt with a teacher that you had to you know, train under and, and in a school, and in a monastery, right? And that one-on-one personal connection was extremely important because the master could look you in the eye, could ask you a riddle of what's known as a koan, like, what is the sound of one hand clapping is a famous one, or does the dog have Buddha nature, or who is the real master, etc. And he poses this, or she poses this to you, and he can see by your body language, by how you respond, by the fluidity in your movements, by how quickly you respond, whether it's fake or whether it's real. That can't, you can't get that over the internet, right? So, um, and the thing about Zen is it's an incredibly personal experience. So, you can't, there are no shortcuts to enlightenment. Let's say enlightenment is your goal. I haven't reached enlightenment. I'm, I'm not anywhere. Yeah, that's the next door. I hope this isn't too loud for you. Sorry about that. That's fine. You know, um, if in, let's say enlightenment is your goal, right? There's no shortcut to it. You have to meditate day after day after day after day. um, And eventually it may come to you. You never know when it will come to you, right? Um, So 
but it has to be through your own what's called zazen, which is sitting, sitting meditation. Zen is all about sitting meditation. That's the key of it. So if people are talking to you on the internet, giving you clues and tips, and they're, I notice I have, I have certain on Facebook, certain Zen groups that I, and people talk and talk and talk and talk, and Zen isn't about talking, it's about acting. It's about realizing things to yourself through your own actions, through your own meditation. All this chatter, all this talk, all this advice, it's just bullshit. You have to do it yourself. You have to spend time alone. You have to follow a few certain basic principles. You have to go to a school with a real teacher in a real building, not on the internet. So I find a lot of that stuff kind of fake and deceptive, deceiving. And I think true people who follow Zen would, would feel a similar way. Mm-hmm. Not yes. to say that there might be a way to do it on the internet. There might be some value to it. But if, you, if that's the only thing you do, if you're relying on it, I think it's, it's very dangerous. So for, from what I, I've read and what I've seen, a part of, of Zen or enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, is, is there's no, pre- you've no preferences. Because a preference creates a judgment, now there's a good and a bad, etc. And it, it feels to me like there's a Facebook group or commentary, people talking, this is good, this is bad, no, right. you're not Zen, you're the... It right. seems like that's all judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's called non-discrimination, the, the, discriminatory, the discriminatory mind, which is, I am here and the world is out there, the separation between the subject and the object, all the other discriminations of the human mind are false, they're illusions. Called Maya. It's called Maya in, in Buddhism. And um, so you want to get beyond all of that. You want to get to everything is one in the end. If you ever get to that point, you realize it. But you want to be able to drop all of that kind of judgment part of the self. Because all that judging part of the self is the ego. And Zen is about getting rid of the ego and becoming, having an egoless experience. Have you found meditation to be your favorite tool to get closer to that place? It's like the only tool. I mean, I should spend more time going to a school and I plan on doing it on my list of things. Um, and so what they do at the school is they also have instruction. A teacher will give you a little lecture. I usually don't find those terribly helpful. Then you have, being in a group is very helpful. And then you have walking meditation where you walk around in a circle for half an hour and you meditate. That's really a lot of very exciting, interesting. And they have special retreats that go on for seven days. Those would be great tools, but since I'm kind of stuck in the house because of my stroke, the seated meditation is like my only way. But I also read books, and when I read books, I don't read modern books by you know giving you kind of self-help. I read the most esoteric Zen texts from the eighth century from Chinese patriarchs, the earliest Zen masters, the hardest people to, to read because I find that very inspiring. And when you read those, is that, is, what is that experience like for you? Are you reading a page and it takes you 20 minutes because you want to contemplate and reflect on what you're reading? Well, sometimes things, certain phrases will just click into you and you never forget them and they enter your meditation and they're there forever. So there's the famous, uh, uh, I forget how to put it, Nagarjuna, who's an early Buddhist. He actually wasn't Zen. And he talks about... Um, how the mind separates us from this world that is at ease. And I've just never forgot that the world at ease and what it means is birds, plants, trees, they don't feel any anxiety. 
They're not separating themselves from the world. Everything that they do is at ease, even their pain, even their suffering. They're at ease with the world. So phrases will stick in my mind, and I'm sort of searching for that. Do you, do you feel that language causes a lot of the separation? Well, the, the word I always think about is, the word is not the thing. It's one totally. of those phrases I think about a lot. That's why I find so many people are too chatty about something like Zen. And the Zen masters are really angry about that thing. You get caught up in words and in language. It's like the, there's a Zen koan about a man who had a really long beard, red beard, and he put the beard on the right side, and then he realized that he couldn't sleep at all of that. And he says, which side of the, should I put my beard on? And he asked the mass, somebody about that, and he got contradictory advice. And he spent his whole life, he could never sleep, because he didn't know which side to put his beard on. Words will do that to you. They'll create problems that don't exist, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, there are other there are forms of Western therapy that talk about that, like cognitive therapy, <coughs> to try to get you out of overthinking things, you know, what they call in Zen, putting a head on top of a head, right? Yeah. But language is, yeah, is a, is a major barrier. But then, you know, you have to use language to get at enlightenment. And so they, the Zen masters found the perfect means, which are these koans. If you've ever read, you go, what the hell does that mean? So they use language to make you realize that language is kind of useless. Which is a very ironic thing for Robert Greene to say. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, early on in my books, I've, I've always believed this, that there is something else that sort of transcends language that is more important and vital. And in The 48 Laws of Power, I remember writing things about spectacle and colors and creating compelling spectacles, mm-hmm. or playing on people's fantasies, etc. Or, you know, just mostly those kind of laws. And I remember the editor was saying, Oh, come on, you know, words are very helpful, they're very important. And I was sort of arguing with them. So it's something that I've been saying in all of my books. There are things, like if you're trying to, if you're marketing, you're trying to reach your audience, you're not going to reach them with a bunch of words and verbiage. You can reach them here, with a feeling, with a gut, with colors, with imagery, with just an overall mood, with music. Mm-hmm. So it's something very entrenched in my thinking. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, in terms of talking about spectacles and symbols and things like that, do you or have you seen anything recently or in the last few years where you saw maybe it was a marketing campaign or uh, internet thing, something where you're like, wow, that was, a, that was a really solid marketing play there, or that was a grand spectacle. I was, I was impressed by that. I'm sure there is, but you're putting me on the spot and nothing, and nothing immediately comes to mind. I know what I don't like. Sure. I don't like things that are kind of preachy and are kind of trying to make you feel guilty, right? Or um, that are like, you know, use, like the whole point about marketing is, um, and I talked about this in seduction a lot, is you want to be indirect. You don't want to give the people the feeling that you're selling something. Correct. You want them to feel that this is something natural, that that what you're saying is true, is real, right? as opposed to imposing yourself and pushing on them an idea and creating, trying to deceive them. Because people nowadays are very cynical and are very sophisticated, and they can see through the obvious deceptions of a lot of advertising. But a lot of advertising isn't in the actual message. It's in the colors, it's in the, it's in the subtext, it's the subliminal messaging. And I know I've seen things that I found were very powerful, just can't say off the top of my head. 
Sure. Yeah, the, uh, the thing that always comes to my mind is that the, the best salesman is the one you have no idea that they're selling you. You right. know, Steve Jobs was this incredible salesperson, and no one refers to him as a salesperson. He's I mean, a when, he, when he gave the, the talk, the presentation, and even the, the marketing campaigns, the think different, and, yeah. you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. No one thought of Steve Jobs as a salesperson. Right. But that's what he was. Right. You know, um, even someone like, like Jesus Christ, right? His ideas it's lasted for centuries, and he's selling ideas. That seems kind of blasphemous to say that, but is it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't. I mean, I don't mean to offend anyone no, at no, all. No, I I'm saying that there's there's something to the person who it's not. I'm selling you a product. It's I'm on a cru I'm a crusader here. Right, right, and, right. And that's gonna attract. I mean, a lot a lot of my audience they're marketers and salespeople, and, and th just so they understand, that's what's gonna attract an audience a lot more. Well, can you think of yourself a campaign that you felt was was particularly brilliant. Maybe I could respond. Sure. Well, I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a, an internet marketing campaign four or five years ago that came out. Are you familiar with Ty Lopez? Sure. So he, I don't know if you're here in my garage. He's on the iPhone. He's got the Lamborghini behind him in the garage. I've seen that. You, when, when we're after, I'll show you the video real quick. To me, I thought it was it was incredibly innovative, and it it, it utilized existing symbols. Very well. Oh. So he tapped into something that was already there and, uh -huh. and just flashed on, and I thought, wow. yeah, I thought he did a really good job with that. Wow, I'll have to go look at it. I'll, I'll I'm sure something time. will come to me later, but I don't know. The minute we leave. Yeah, it'll the minute happen. we leave. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Um, so, yeah, I have a couple a couple of kind of left turns I think we can take now. What? Obviously, you're working on your new book. So like, what's got your attention right now? What are you kind of geeked out about right now? Well, um, you mean like what is the new book about? Well, kind of it could be the new book, or is it maybe something you're reading. So, like, what are you kind of like? Wow, that's I want to dig more into that. I'm fascinated by this right now. What are you fascinated by right now? Well, I'm fascinated by my new book. Um, I'm kind of going into um, what I what I'm calling the sublime and sort of peak experiences, and um, that I think are, are transform a person. And make them more creative, and make them feel more fulfilled, and um, and it's also related. I have this feeling that people are trapped right now in very limited forms of thinking. That people are far too conventional. They follow what other people are thinking and doing, right? And so I'm maintaining in this book that as a social animal, um, we humans always create limits. It's like a circle, right? This is what our reality is according to our civilization and where we live. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is how you should do things. This is how you should behave with other people. This is how things are, should be, what goes into success, etc. And this becomes like what you assume is reality. But the people who are truly inventive, who truly are brilliant, crash those limits. They explore beyond that circle. They go into that darker outer area beyond where other most people are, are too afraid of, right? Yeah. Because most people are riddled with fear. Um, so the sublime is about exploring past those limits and breaking those barriers and doing things that nobody else has done before and exploring without fear and seeing what happens to you and the incredible empowering emotion that comes from that. And I'm obsessed with the neuroscience behind that. So I'm reading lots of books about the brain and how the brain functions will be a major theme in the book.
because it's my idea to ground what seems to be something kind of quasi-mystical or spiritual. It's something very, very real and scientific. Because I think science is deeply sublime. So like reading several months ago about the black hole that was photographed, my God, what, a, what an insane thing. How incredibly brilliant. Just see, thinking about that should completely alter how you go about your daily life. They photographed a black hole, and now people are trying to say, what happens to a person if they pass through that black hole? It should blow your mind away. Okay, so I'm, I'm accumulating things like that. But I'm obsessed with the brain because the brain is the most insane instrument. It's far more interesting than a computer or artificial intelligence or anything else ever created. And I want to ground this idea of how the brain creates our own limits. It creates our own reality because the brain operates by patterns, by recognizing patterns and by simplifying reality, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens to the brain when you go beyond that? When you stop, when you let go of those patterns, which is a lot of what Zen is about, and you reprogram your mind and you're able to think in new ways, does that change the neural pathways in the brain? Does something happen to the brain? And yes, it does, and there's been incredible science about that. So I'm very geeked about that and the research I'm doing about the, the new book. Yeah. And there's several different paths that the new book takes that include you know, other things beyond just what I just mentioned, but that's something that's on my mind a lot now. But the peak experience type of thing, is that, how does that relate or does it relate at all to what in Zen they would call enlightenment? Well, it, it, it does relate in that, um, you know, enlightenment, so let's say that the circle that we're talking about that we live in is how our brains are programmed through language to relate to the world. There's me, and then there's the outside world, the subject and the object. There's good and there's evil. There's dark and there's light. Okay? And enlightenment is a, is a breakthrough, is a flash of light in which you go beyond that little circle and you see something that's truly real. And, um, I have an amazing book. It's, it's a heavy read. It's 700 pages. It's called Zen and the Brain by James Austin. He's a neuroscientist who became obsessed with Zen meditation and reached a very high level of it. And he analyzes in depth what happens to the brain after years of meditating. And it's very, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Because in meditation, you're basically not giving the brain anything to think about. It's called sensory deprivation, in essence. It's like going into one of those tanks, mm -hmm. those deprivation tanks. Because when you're meditating, you're not looking at anything, you're not hearing anything. And that kind of breaks through a lot of the programming that the brain sets up. So enlightenment is very much related to what I'm talking about here. But I, one of the books that I'm really excited about that I did research is a famous book called Touching the Void. Have you heard of that? I have not. They made a movie out of it. It's Mountain Climber who, um, as a young man in his 20s, went to this mountain in Peru, in the, in the Andes, I think it's in Peru, um, with a friend, and they were climbing this incredibly high peak, very few people had climbed, and on the way down, he had an accident, and he basically tore his knee up, and in that case, it was like, forget it, you're gonna die, because if, if two people are, are going down a mountain together, the one person who's dragging the other one will, will kill him. They'll, they'll both die. So it's like, you just got to abandon me, man. 
And the other guy who's his partner goes, no, I'm going to try and rescue you. And they try and they're getting close. And at one point, though, he falls down a cliff and the other, his partner realizes the only way, to, if he keeps falling, he's going to pull me down with him. So I have to cut the rope. He cuts the rope and the guy falls into this crevice, this deep crevice. It's all black, complete, total darkness. And he's in there for like a week. And his partner leaves him for dead and goes back. And he's like experiencing like this insane void. You can't see anything, you can't hear anything. And what happens to him? It's a kind of a form of enlightenment that occurred to him in that moment. So there are different pathways you can take. It's not just through Zen meditation. It can occur in, in a relationship with a person, with love. It can occur in your work, you know, in the moment of flow in work, where you feel at one with what you're doing. It can occur in a social movement, where you feel like you're creating justice or something. There are many ways to get at that peak experience. But what happens to the brain and how it transforms us is pretty much the same process. And what are your thoughts on, obviously in the last few years, I think it's become trendy for the ayahuasca journeys and things like that and, and different type of psychedelics. Well, people want me to go on one of those for writing this book and I've been invited. And I don't know if you know Aubrey Marcus. Yes, I'm aware of him. Yeah, yeah he, he's interviewed me with friends. He's a big believer in ayahuasca. He wants to initiate me. I don't know, I might. I'm kind of an older guy and, you know, who knows what that'll do to me. I've also had a stroke. I'd be a little careful with my brain. Mm -hmm. But when I was younger, in my early 20s, I did a lot of drugs. I did peyote at least 10 times. I did a fair amount of LSD. I did mushrooms, you know. I did hashish. I ate hashish. I was into it mm -hmm. because I wanted to explore. I wanted to explore and experience reality in a different way. And one of my favorite books as a young man was the books of Carlos Castaneda, the Don Juan books, I don't know, you, you're probably too young to know about them. I'm aware, I haven't read them. They totally changed my way of thinking, the beautiful books. Anyway, so I did a lot of that stuff and it had, I'll never forget it. And sometimes when I'm meditating, I go, I can almost put myself back into those feelings. I can almost imagine the excitement I had just looking at things as they are when I'm sitting there on peyote while I'm meditating. So I have nothing against that path as long as it's not about the addiction, as long as it's not about the high and escaping, it's more about reality and getting at what's real and who you are and what the world is really like and breaking out of the prison of language and all these other things. Mm -hmm. So I think it can, it can be a, a good tool if you're careful and you go at it the right way. There's, uh, are you familiar with like the neuro-linguistic programming? The NLP, sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the creators, Richard uh, Bandler, talks about how he would have patients or people that would go on these trips, MDMA or LSD, different things like this, and at the peak of those journeys, he would create anchors for them then, so later, at, when sober, they could fire oh. off the anchor and wow. return to a similar state oh. instantly. Wow. I, don't, I don't know if, if that's useful for you at all. But for, for the book or for... I, I have no idea. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's not, well, it sounds like you kind of do it already when you meditate. I, I did that, and I probably did that when I was taking drugs as well at the time, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I could have easily died because I was very adventurous. So, you know, I do, I wouldn't be advocating for parents to be telling their children to go on these adventures. But if you do what you're saying, you're anchored, 
you have a certain approach to it, and it's not about the it's not about the thrill or about the actual drug itself. It's about you, you, and exploring who you are and finding things out. But I had some bad trips that you know could have easily done so. You know, it's not all it's not all peaches and cream. Sure, sure. I have some friends that have, have voiced similar bad trips and things like that. Yeah. Uh, do you care about money? Well, I do. I mean, um, in that, you know, I'm, I have a lot of, I'm, I'm not bragging, but I'm doing very well. Now. Sure. But, you know. I don't know the exact number of how many books, like how many, do you know the number of how many copies of your books have been sold worldwide? Oh, no. Like, no way it's, it because countries, millions and millions, yeah. Because countries like Russia, they never tell you the truth, <laughs> right? Because they don't want to pay you. yeah. I think it's Russia. I love Russia, but that's just, you know, or Italy, they don't tell you the truth, so I have no idea. But, um, so what I value money for is the freedom, right, that it gives me. Because I remember I was relatively poor for a long time. I had, like, I calculated, like, 50 different jobs before I wrote my book. I had the worst job you can imagine, the most soul-crushing jobs. I know how unhappy people can be and I know what not having money can do to you. It consumes you. You can't be creative. You can't think properly. Um, it's not good for your health. So I value money for the freedom it gives me, the fact that I don't have to worry about things, and I can focus on things that are important to me. So, but I don't value it for, oh, I can go out and buy a boat now, or I can you know, get a Lamborghini. For the status reasons. Yeah, I'm right. completely not into that. Yeah. I'm into it for the liberation of, of petty worries about, can I pay this bill? Which I found really difficult. And I have tremendous empathy for people out there. This is why I wrote Mastery. For people who have to go through that, which is a lot of people, a nine-to-five job or et cetera, and how difficult it is to overcome those circumstances and find, be creative yes. and fulfill yourself. I know how hard it was because I've been through that. Yeah, it, it, the bills and the bill stress and stuff, it, it can suffocate someone's heart, right? Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, if you go back in the centuries and you know the history much better than me, but you would look for, I don't know if the word was sponsor, but you know, someone like... like patron. Patron, yeah, Galileo needs a patron so he can focus entirely on what he wants to, to right. discover. So what's your advice for someone, let's say that they are 24 years old, they're, all, they're at the cubicle and they see they see Bob, 55 years old, and they're like, I do not want to end up like, they're already disenchanted with the plan they were sold as a kid. And they have ideas, I want to do the startup, I want to do art, I want to write, I want to create, but I got a house mortgage now, I got a car, I got, I got these things I got to do. For that person, would you advise them, drop it all and, and go to work on your art and your mastery, or find a way to make enough money so you don't have to worry about money so then you're totally free and now you can focus on the, the, the art. Well, it's a great question. It's the most important question of all probably. Um, and the problem is there's not a single simple answer because everybody is different and has their own circumstances. One thing is if I could rewind a little bit is if you're a little younger, be careful about assuming too much debt because that will really limit your choices in life. So be careful with your student loan debt. You know, you may not get getting $100,000 in debt to graduate from Michigan State with a degree in English. What's it going to get you, right. right? So be careful about that, right? And maybe don't go that way. And then maybe don't get the car. 
so to find another way. So keep yourself as free and loose as possible, which when you're young is easier. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, um, you know, your time is short, right? So realize that. It's hard to realize that when you're 24, you think you've got these immense vistas of time ahead of you. Wow, man, I'm going to be into my 70s. I've got years. I, well, I, I don't, you know, you don't. You don't have as much time as you think you do, right? So you want to be focused, okay? And so if you take the path of I'm going to make a lot of money and free myself up and then I'm going to write poetry or rock music, that's a false path in life. That's going to waste time. You're going to waste your youth on it. You're going to burn yourself out because, okay, if you could make a lot of money in two years, fine. But that will probably corrode something essential in yourself. Let's say through Bitcoin investment, in two years you could have made $20 million something, and then you can do whatever you want. You probably won't do whatever you want because you've got all this money and you're going to say, fuck it. Well, you say, damn it. You, you, know, you, you can say, ask. Uh, you, know, <laughs> right. you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go party all the time. That's false, bad paths. Do not take that path. Do not get seduced by the idea that when you're in your 20s, your goal is to make as much money as possible and that will free you up. So the, the goal that what you want is you want to find out you know, who you are what you were meant to do within reason. So I'm a practical person. It's not about quitting your job at the cubicle and suddenly going out and trying to become a rock star or something, right? You, gotta, you do have bills to pay. You have to eat. You have to be reasonably comfortable. Although when you're young, you can be a little more loose with these things. But within reason, you want to have a sense of what you love, what excites you, and then mastery. I give you kind of many ways of examining that, like going into your childhood and what attracted to you when you were a kid and to what excites you now. Subjects that you read about in the online are sort of like, wow, this is so exciting, I have to know more. Getting in touch with yourself, having a journal and writing in that journal. This is what I love, this is what I hate. Hate is a very important emotion in this. I hated working for other people. I hated office politics. I hated being around bitchy, manipulative people. I hated it so much that I found a job where I never have to deal with anybody ever again. You know, I mean, publishers, but they're they're usually very nice. Especially after the success of the first book. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sure. So, or you could be the opposite. I love being around people. I can't stand being alone. But who are you? What do you really like? Create in this journal, which you give some time and attention to, and is very important. It's not a little side thing that you're doing. It's not like something you do for 10 minutes. It's your life, it's your future, it's what's going to make you happy. Take it seriously. Write this down. Get a sense of what that is. And kind of map out a potential future, some paths to take. And the thing is, if you don't, if you're not excited by what you're doing, you will tune out. We know this about the brain. And when you want, when you're motivated to learn, you will learn. I always tell people the example. When I was in college, I studied French for several years. And then I went to Paris, and I couldn't speak one sentence. I was like, people go, and I didn't understand anything. And then I met a French woman I was very interested in. And man, in two weeks, I learned more than I learned two years in college. 
because I really needed to learn and I really yeah. wanted to. And it was important to me yeah. to be able to communicate. So when you're motivated, when you want, when your desire clicks in, you learn. So you have to find something that excites you. So the path that you can take could be several. It could be, all right, I don't quit my job, but on the side, I go back to school, I take classes that are practical. I don't go back and study, you know, 12th century Italian poetry. I study, you know, startup and how to create a startup or I study marketing, etc., like something like that. And you sort of, or you, um, you sort of find a, a job that pays less, but is more related to what you want to do in life, you know. If you want to be a writer, journalism is a very good start in life because it doesn't pay very well, it's kind of a crap job, but it teaches you discipline, it teaches you how to work on a deadline, it teaches you how to, how to write under pressure, how to make something kind of snappy, you know, etc. Mm -hmm. Just good discipline. Pick things, that, pick environments where you're going to learn. Learning skills is gold. So gold is not Bitcoin, $10 million. Gold is skills and learning and knowledge. Whether you get it from a mentor, a master who you can attach yourself to, whether you get it to a job, doesn't pay as well, it gives you opportunities to try things and to learn, or whether it's night school, community college that's not expensive, that you don't go after debt in, and you can start developing some of these side skills. And the other thing is when you're young, be adventurous. Don't be one of these person who goes, oh, mommy and daddy told me to go into law school, I better go into law school and make a lot of money kind of mono-focused down the sort of monorail path in life. Mm -hmm. Try things out. Try five different things out. See what you love, see what you hate. Be a little bit adventurous, you know? Yep. Uh, I talk about in the book about Paul Graham, person who founded Y Combinator, right? He's a billionaire for sure by now. He uh, loved computers. He was a hacker back in the 70s when there were no hackers. He was a computer geek. He went to college, he went to MIT, he learned artificial intelligence in the first phases of it. He decided he hated college, he hated academia, he did not want to teach. So he got out of it and he went to work for a software company. He hated it, he hated working for people, he hated corporations, he got out of it. He went to art school in Italy and learned how to paint. And then came back to New York and was in a loft with no money and was painting. And then he heard an advertisement on, on the radio for Netscape Navigator. Remember back then, you were probably like four years old. I remember, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they were saying, the internet is where people are going to buy things in the future. And he got, wow, I think I can make a lot of money by designing a kind of a website where you can buy things on it. And he took all his hacking skills and all the design things he learned from painting and all he learned from artificial intelligence. And he created this great website that he sold to Yahoo for like $40 million. And then he keeps doing this on and on like, like stepping stones. He, after he sells it, after he's bored, he moves on to something else. But what he did was he was adventurous. He found what he hated, tried things out. And in the end, he was able to combine all of his different skills. So for me, nothing was wasted in my life. Think of all the crap jobs that I had. I worked, you know, as working in, in, at Disney as a temp, which was the most soul-crushing job. I worked in a detective agency as a skip tracer. 
tracing down people who had disappeared and weren't paying their bills. Terrible, terrible job. You know, I worked for the first online encyclopedia. Boy, was that a miserable job. I, I was a construction worker in Greece when I, had, when I ran out of money. But all those things, I learned about power. I learned about manipulation. I learned about human nature. I learned about good people and negative people. You know, people you can trust, people you can't. All went into the 48 laws of power. Nothing is wasted. So if your eyes are open and you're learning, which is the gold of in your 20s, nothing is wasted. If you try a job out and it doesn't work out, you learn something valuable. Be adventurous, but with some focus, is what I would say, and accumulate skills. It's, I literally, I just, I have to say, because like you, you had such a good uh, thing you said about skills and, and acquiring the skills, and skills are gold. My whole business online, what we teach, I, I teach something called high-income skills and copywriting, closing, marketing, speaking, those kinds of stuff. That's all we teach. Yeah. Uh, and we always say you can't earn a high income without high income skills because it's the skills that will build the income. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it just fits. We'll, we'll take like a clip of that and I'll say, Robert Green agrees. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, what do you think about the, you mentioned that as you are going through these experiences in your 20s and uh, you need to, to really have your, your ears up, your antenna up, your eyes open, so you're not just going through the motions, but you're truly, uh, you're, you're pulling out the gold from each of these experiences. What about all the people in their 20s who are addicted to their cell phones and they're not really experiencing anything because there's no awareness as they're going through this stuff? Yeah, well, um, you know, it has, it, it's, it's very dangerous, you know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm noticing it more and more now. I see people, as I'm meditating and looking at the window, I see people walking their dogs like, mm. <laughs> you know, you're not noticing that, the, that this is beautiful sunny morning, you're not noticing the coyote walking up the street, you're just, you know, like we descended from apes, kind of walk like this, and now we <laughs> kind of walk like down. this, yeah. you know, yeah. so are, you know, do you want to be a loser in life? Well, go right ahead and become addicted to your cell phone and stop paying attention. This is the main lesson in the laws of human nature. You're a social animal. Your skill, if you want a high-level income skill, knowing people, knowing, understanding psychology, being able to get along with people, knowing how to motivate them, and understanding what makes them tick, is the most critical skill you'll ever develop in life. So there's no place you're ever going to get in life on your own. You have to be able to work with people, and you have to be really good and brilliant at it. I know Steve Jobs wasn't too good at it, but he got better at it later in life. Okay, so if you're spending all your time like this, you're, you're, you're with, you, I see people in, in, in restaurants now, with groups of eight people, and they're all like that. At that moment, those hours that are going by like that, you're not paying attention to people, you're not picking up their body language, you're not listening to them, you're not getting into their world, you're not being social, you're not learning what it's like to be social, you're not learning about how other people think. You're becoming a raging narcissist because you're just in, locked in your phone. If that's what you want, then fine. I'm not going to argue against that, but you're not going to get very far in life. Yeah. So are you truly motivated? Get rid of your goddamn fucking phone for a while. I, I've interviewed about 20 masters for the book on mastery. I didn't use all of them. And a common theme was these extremely successful people, many of them didn't even have a smartphone. Paul Graham did not have a smartphone. Yoki Matsuoka, who was this incredible um, kind of engineer, um, she had a smartphone, but she hardly ever used it or touched it. You know, Salva, um, 
uh, uh, Kalitrava, the great architect, he never had a smartphone. A lot of people who are very successful don't spend time on the internet. It's a waste. There's value to it. I'm not saying be a Luddite, but there should be some balance, you know. And particularly in social situations, you, you know, think of it this way. If you want to be a great basketball player, you want to be like, your specialty is three-point shot, outside shooter, it's repetition, right? Motor repetition, creating pathways in the brain over and over and over again. Social skills are the same thing. Interacting with people, every time you interact with a person, it's like shooting a three-point shot. You're, you're learning about their body language, you're learning about communicating, you're learning about language skills, you're learning about what makes people charming or not charming, etc. And it's the only way you're going to develop high-level social skills and really make it in life. Yeah. So do you want to spend your life wasting it or do you want to interact with people? Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's... It, I was at dinner the other night, and there was a table of eight, and it looked like grandmother, mother, grandchildren, all women, all of them on their phone, and all the young girls had earbuds at the same time on their iPads or phones. It's, it's, it, it's heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Because uh, you're, you're missing out on everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scary. And you know Steve Jobs obviously didn't let his kids use this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he, he would have died if he saw the uses that people use for the smartphone. What do you, what do you think? I, that's he like, did die. Yeah. But this, this is like an impossible thought experiment. I'm gonna try though. What do you think, like Da Vinci would think of this, the phones, like for his own personal self? Would he have one? Would he use one? Well, he would. He would be totally geeked by the idea of the internet, and of the vast amounts of knowledge you could have, so that, you know, you could. You'd probably get addicted to surfing, and learning about anatomy and the human body. He'd be using it for knowledge, for learning, for science. Mm -hmm. He'd be extremely into that. But the other stuff he would find like total junk and yeah. useless. I mean, because um, I often thought about that, you know, for him, his whole ambition was to understand everything. He called it to become the universal man, to have an understanding of science, of warfare, of perspective, of drawing, of mathematics, of anatomy, etc so that he would understand what made life, life, and he could draw and do it anything, like, kind of like a magician or an alchemist. But his means were so limited. You know, what you could look up, you know, the books that he had access to, the scientists he could talk to, he had to do it all on his own, he had to experiment on his own, and he was brilliant at it. So he'd be like, whoa! But his motto in life was ostinato rigore, rigorous determination. So he was all about discipline, persistence, and, and determination. So he would hate all the softness in our culture, all the fact that people don't do anything, they get everything so easily. But he would be excited by how he could spend 48 hours and really deepen his knowledge of anatomy, or really un or increase his knowledge of biology, etc. So he would he'd put it to that purpose, but he'd find most of it 98% of it like junk. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you'd have the Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram on his smartphone. I can't imagine that. No, I don't yeah. think so. It'd be <laughs> interesting if he had Instagram. But. That would be, I would follow that person right there. <laughs> and, all right, so as we wrap up here, uh, I had a couple questions actually from my Instagram audience uh, uh, that I, I pulled them. I wanted to see what would they want to ask okay. uh, Robert Green. And the, the first question here was, if I'm already successful, but I still want mentors. 
how do I go about doing that? Because he says he wants to network and, met, and be a mentee under the higher level people in his industry, uh-huh. people who are maybe 20, 30 years ahead, but they are threatened by him as his projection because he's already kind of coming up. Well, it's a good question. Um, well, you've got to choose the right person, you know. So um, I always talk about a mentor. It's almost like you get to choose your parents. You never got to choose your parents. But here you get to choose them, and you get want to choose wisely. It's also like a, a, an intimate relationship. You just don't go out and marry the first person you come across. You're a bit careful about it because it could ruin your future. So you want to choose carefully. So one thing that you want to consider are people's, the person's character. So you don't want to, this person could be very successful, but with success comes a very large ego and very high levels of insecurity. You know, I talked about in Laws of Human Nature that Michael Eisner was the CEO of Disney, the most powerful man in Hollywood, but he was the most insecure little baby in the world. He thought Jeffrey Katzenberg, the man who was below him, that he had groomed, was trying to take his job away, which it wasn't. He was so insecure. A lot of people who are successful or above you ha- are like that. You have to find that out. You have to do some research. You have to know about their. Tra- you have to find some things out about their character. And in this day and age, in the internet, you can find anything else you wanted about them, right? So you want to look. And, and reading my book on human nature will, will help you. Signs of character faults or things that will you don't want to get involved with. Okay. The second thing is you have to be able to offer something to that person that they can't normally get. So the law in the laws of power is appeal to people's self-interest, right? So that person who's 25 years older, who's very successful, you have developed a very particular skill that made you successful, whether that was marketing or I don't know what it was. And older people often don't understand the world as it is now. I, I fall into that category. They don't understand Instagram very well. They don't understand what's going on on the internet. You can offer them access to trends and things that are happening that they don't normally have. You fill a, a gap in their skill base, right? Mm-hmm. And so suddenly they're interested, they're excited. But if you choose somebody who's not insecure, they're not going to feel threatened by you or feel like you're after, you know, you're going to take over. I mean, what do you, if someone's in their 50s and they're successful, what are they going to be afraid of? What are, they, what are you going to possibly do to them? You know? right. So choose this person wisely. Choose somebody who's a bit open-minded, who's who you want to be in 20 years, who you find as kind of, you feel affiliated in a spiritual way, way not just because, they have, because they're famous. And offer them something that they can't get on their own. It can be a very, a very mutually benefiting relationship. Okay. And then the other, the other question, that would be the last one here, is uh, they were asking if Robert Greene could have lunch or dinner either way with anyone, live or deceased, who would it be and what, what was like one thing you would want to ask them? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, you know, I'd love to have lunch with Napoleon Bonaparte and ask him, you know, what went wrong? Why did you lose your way after 1806 and suddenly turn into the opposite of who you were as a young man? Do you regret, are you aware of what you did that transformed you into the greatest general in history, into one of the worst generals in history? How could you have 10 years of incredible success and 10 years going the opposite direction leading to your, your downfall? 
Did you learn from it? What can we learn from it? You know, maybe I'd have lunch with Vladimir Putin and I would look him in the eye, unlike George W. Bush, and not see into his soul, but try and see how clever is this man? Is he really as maniacal and as Machiavellian and manipulative as he's, is he as strategic as he is? Because on the dark side of power, which there is, and you look at Russia and you look at their disinformation campaigns, etc., they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. They've understood something about social media. They're far ahead of what other people have understood about social media. They were in advance could understand the power of this as a political weapon, right? From the dark side, from the from the Darth Vader side of life, right? Mm -hmm. And they've done it with other things. They're creating a new form of warfare that's extremely powerful. China is trying to learn from Russia. Russia is terrible at everything else. Russians can't build any piece of technology if their life depended on it. Who buys a Russian product? But they are all really, really good at the manipulative dark side, the dirty side of power and strategy. And I would like to see if he would open up to me, and I wouldn't write about it, or if he wouldn't throw me into prison. How much of this is calculated? How much of it is in control of this? Is he as clever as I think he is? Mm -hmm. That'd be kind of maybe what I would do. That would be very fascinating. Yeah. If I know people who have met him and talked to him, and he's very charming, etc. He's a very charming person, mm -hmm. in person. But, I know, he's also, I think, very scary, so I don't think I... Would I be fall under his charm? You know, it'd be difficult to keep your emotional distance and be able to talk to him and not feel, trying, you know... Some of that, that magnetism, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. It would be really fascinating if we could get you, Napoleon, and put them together <laughs> at one meal. That would be... I would, we would have to record that. That would All be right, you come, I'll let you know when that happens. All right, well, I'll, I'll go to work and I'll see if I can do okay, it. Okay. I can't, just in advance. I know I can't. Okay. <laughs> but I'll try. Um, Robert, thank you so much for, for oh, spending pleasure, your time Jason. and sharing your That was Great awesome. questions, thank you. You are welcome. Thank you so much. And yeah. everyone, uh, leave a comment below um, on what you thought about the interview. And if you had any more questions for Robert, maybe I'll, I'll shoot him a text message or something. And there might be more. Also, we're going to put links in the description um, to all of Robert's books, and frankly, I recommend you buy all of them. When you go on Amazon, pick the first one. It will tell you customers like you also buy, and it'll show you. Get them all. Trust me on that. You will not regret it. Um, other than that, thank you guys so much. Thanks for sharing your time, and we'll see you soon. Hey, why don't you have the time you want for yourself yet? Why does your job keep letting you down? It's because you haven't developed the high-income skills yet to create your own high-income empire for yourself, and your family. So at the link below, you now have me as your personal mentor completely free for the next seven days. You have a free username and password. I'm gonna get started with you right away. And if you love it, it's only $10 a month after that. All right, you pay more for Spotify, and I promise you Spotify is not gonna change your life and your business the way that this can. Now, I can do this forever. So hit that link and come join us inside right now.